Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. This morning we're going to be continuing our series that we've been in for a few months from the book of Genesis. And um, before we get started, uh, I wanted to let you know that the title of my message is When God Chooses. When God Chooses. And as we're getting started, there's a couple of elephants that I need to talk about before we move forward, okay? I got two elephants in the room, literally, two elephants. Uh, the first one's kind of a small elephant. It's, an, it's the elephant of technology. Now, if you've ever been in the church for a while, uh, you know that change can be distracting and difficult. I don't know if you know this, but back in the 1300s, this instrument got brought into the church called the pipe organ. And it caused a huge stink in the church. They said, that's from the devil. Uh, now, that, if you've been in any of these older churches, the pipe organ is a standard piece of equipment. If you take it out of that church, they might say, that's of the devil. I remember back in the late 1990s, the church has made this change. There was, uh, and I'm actually uh, wearing it right now. Uh, back in the day, they used to have what they call lapel mics, and they switched to head mics back in the 1990s, late 1990s. I remember that there was this big stink, and everybody was like, you're just trying to be like Garth Brooks or like Madonna. I mean, I can remember that there was this like uproar going on. Um, it's, it's one of those things that technology can be distracting advancement. So this morning, technology is going to be introduced to this congregation. It's not much, but it's enough that it might be distracting. Typically at this time, Georgiana Adams in the back here, she is flipping the slides, right? Well, this morning, I'm going to be doing it from up here. And also, I have something in my hand here that's going to be really cool, okay? Ooh. And that wasn't even the gospel, y'all. So. so as we're getting started here, if I mess up, hey, there's an elephant in the room that we just shot. We know what's going on, okay? We'll keep working on it till we get it right. But I got a question for you. What is the best sport that has ever been played? All right, so some, okay, wow. Uh, some of you might think mountain biking is, is one of the greatest sports. Where's Craig at? Right here, see, one person. Yeah. Uh, you might think soccer. Or you might think that rock climbing in a wedding dress is, uh, I don't know what's going on in here. I don't know if she's going to get her groom or if she's getting away from him. Uh, and I don't know why they took this picture, but anyway, I thought it was very interesting. That might be one of your favorite sports. It could be surfing. That's for the ladies, you know. But let me tell you what the real deal is. Kickball. Come on. Yeah, okay, you with me? Man, I'm telling you, back in third grade, I was the man. At kickball. If there had been a, uh, a scholarship given in college, I would have gone D1, okay? 
And if they would have been professional, I think that I would have been drafted in the first round, probably near one or two. Okay, I'm not bragging, just letting you know. But do you remember back in the day when you were in the playground and you were playing kickball or a sport like that and you had to choose teams, how the teams were chosen? Do you remember that? How many of, those, of you in this room, that's, that's just a painful memory? If your hand is in the air, you know why that's a painful memory? Because you got chose last, right? <laughs> Kelly's got both of her hands in the air. It is a horrible thing if you think about how teams are chosen. It's because it was based on uh, most, the most worthy players went first, right? And the rest, you're like, okay, all right, come on. All right, we'll t- I'll take you. It's horrible. I didn't, but I didn't really experience that until I went to college. And I did, I did make the team. That's all I did. I made the team. But I was like that guy that was like, okay, yeah, whatever. And so I only lasted one year. But that is a horrible way to, to uh, have little children be scarred for the rest of their lives. Because what does, it, what does it say? It says, you're not good enough, right? You're not really good enough to be on the team. But you know what the difference is with God? That's not the way that God chooses. When God chooses... It's not about what you can do. But this is where elephant number two comes into the room, okay? This is where elephant number two comes into the room because there is this conflict as I've been studying Genesis that goes on in me. Because as I look at the men and women that God chose to be on his team, to bring the Messiah into the world, The people he chose, I'm telling you, if I was the one choosing, they would not have been chosen on my team if we were in the playground. And and when I look at the the women and men of faith who are found in the book of Hebrews, sometimes they just don't align with what I think a godly man or a godly woman should look like. Because, you know, these people, they had some major issues, if we're honest, right? Uh, We had um, uh, murderers. Drunks, sexually immoral, lazy people, impulsive. If you study the lineage of Jesus in Matthew or Luke, go back and look at some of these people. Look up these names you don't even know. These people were, had their issues. And yet, today, they stand in the, in the book of Hebrews as heroes of the faith. Forgiven. They're forgiven. It's it's important to understand that they are forgiven of the the lives that they lived. And so what I want us to see this morning is that in this world, making the team in this world is based on popularity, productivity, and profitability. It's about who you know, what you can do, and how much you can bring in. But that's not the way that God's economy works. And last week, we talked about a guy named Jacob. You remember Jacob? His name means he cheats. Can you imagine that being your name and you going to school? Good morning, he cheats is here. If I was a teacher, it's like you're sitting way over here, not near anybody else. He was a deceiver, right? He, he cheated his brother. Well, he didn't cheat him. He took advantage of his brother Esau, right? For a bowl, and Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of Campbell's chunky soup. <laughs> it, it cost him more than he realized. And then Jacob went 
and he cheated him out of the blessing by deceiving his elderly, hold on, his blind elderly father, Isaac. And guess how he did it? He did it in the name of God. He did it in the name of God. Jacob was what we would call a shrewd dude, yet he was clearly God's choice. Because in Romans chapter 9, it says that while Esau and Jacob were in the womb of mom, that God had chosen Jacob to be the one through whom the blessing would come through. And that, that creates this elephant in the room for me. But, you know, there's consequences that Jacob had to deal with and his mom had to deal with for their deception, isn't it? Isn't there? Aren't there? Thank you. <laughs> See, you respond at kickball. But, uh, you know, Rebecca came to Jacob and said, hey, look, for some reason Esau's angry uh, because you stole his blessing. So you need to get out of town for a little bit, lay low, and then in a little while you can come back and everything will go on as normal. Well, as we know, 20 years pass and Rebecca dies. Her consequence was she never got to see her son again. And Isaac, before Jacob gets sent out, he calls uh, Jacob to himself to have one more conversation with him. And that is where we're going to pick up in our passage. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to begin with verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Now you see what's going on here? Isaac tells Jacob, don't take a wife from the Canaanite women. What does that remind you of? That reminds me of Abraham when he sent the servant away. He said, do not take a Canaanite wife for Isaac. This is what Isaac is now passing on to his son. He does not want his son to marry an ungodly woman, so he sends him back to his household. Verse 3 says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Right here, Isaac is showing that he is in full agreement now with God's choice. Whether or not he knew what he was doing back when he was trying to bless Esau, he knows now that Isaac is the one, um, that Jacob is the one that should receive the blessing. He is fully agreeing with it. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. He's basically praying the Abrahamic covenant, agreeing with it. And, and giving it uh, or affirming it to Isaac, to Jacob. Verse 5. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. And Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, I don't know if you can see this on the map up here, but 
Beersheba. This is where Jacob is going to start. Beersheba is right down here. Can you read that where you're at? Right down here. Now, he's going to go all the way up to Padan Aram, which is right up here. And Haran is right there. So this is his hometown. From here to here is about 550 miles. Now, right here it says he stayed somewhere the first night. Right here is where he stayed is, is in Bethel, which was about 40 miles away. So this is where our story is taking place this, this morning, is in Bethel. And it says in verse 12, And he dreamed. I want to stop there, stop right there and look at this real quick. Uh, let's see here. How about that? Yeah. That's where the all oh, come on. Ah, oh, yes. It says that he had a dream. Now, according to researchers, everybody dreams at least two hours a night. Whether or not you remember it or not, you do dream. It's usually in the REM cycle, the sleep cycle that you dream. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Rapid eye movement. If you see somebody asleep and their eyes are going like that, they're probably dreaming. And this is the time to mess with them. <laughs> because during REM sleep, they're, they're paralyzed. They cannot move. Have you ever tried to, have you ever woken up you're, like you're asleep, but you're awake and you're trying to wake up in the middle of a dream? It's like, <laughs> okay, so I shouldn't, have, okay, so so Jacob is having a dream, right? And he's about to have an encounter with God through this dream. And it's going to dramatically change the course of his life. And you know, God does speak through dreams. I want to be clear about that. God does speak through dreams. He spoke in the Old Testament. He spoke in the New Testament. And it says in the last days, which we are living in, he will pour out his spirit and that his people will have dreams. So I don't want to be up here and, and act like, we don't believe that God speaks through dreams, but we've got to be careful when we think, when we talk about dreams. We've got to be careful that we don't try to spiritualize all dreams. It could just be that you have indigestion that night, okay? We've got to be careful because we have a tendency sometimes to want to have signs and wonders. Not all dreams are from God. We need to understand that. Not all dreams are from God. We had years ago, about 20-some years ago, a lady came to Kelly, and she said, you know what, I had a dream about your son last night. Oh, and it was so bad. For 20 years, guess what we've wondered? When is it coming, right? Been tempted. You can, you can make somebody fear something. That, that wasn't from God, that this lady had tried to share that something was going to happen to one of our children. And it's one of those things that we have to be careful when we come to dreams. And I, and I want to be clear that I actually want to see signs and wonders. I'm not someone that doesn't want to see that. God says in Jeremiah 33, verse 3, Call unto me, and I will answer thee and show you what? Great and mighty things that thou knowest not. I want to see glory. I want to see the glory of Christ. But we've got to be careful that our faith, is not built primarily on signs and wonders, but rather on the written word of God. You know, that, the reason I'm saying that is because this is what Jesus teaches us. In Luke 16, I preached on this a few months ago, the rich man and Lazarus. Y'all remember that account? It says that the rich man, he died 
and he went to hell. He was in torment, and he's having this conversation with Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I beg you, send Lazarus to my family because I've got five brothers there. You need to go and send Lazarus there to warn my brothers so that they don't come to this horrible place. And Abraham, look what he, what he replies. He says, they have Moses and the prophet. Let them listen to them. What is he talking about? They've got Moses and the prophets. I don't have my Bible up here, but he's talking about the written word of God here. He says, let them listen to them. And the, the rich man keeps arguing. He says, no, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Do you understand what this man is saying? He's saying if they have signs and wonders, that will help them to repent and to believe. And look at what Abraham says. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. They will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing us already to the cross and to the resurrection. That's what he wants us to see. He says, you want a sign? You want a wonder? Well, here's your sign. A crucified Savior. A crucified Savior and a risen Lord. Let the wonder of Calvary be your sign. Let that be the sign of our church, the cross, the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. And then, if God chooses to pour out signs and wonders upon us, we'll be in the right space, in the right place to rightly receive them. But Jacob, he did not have, he did not have um, the written word of God at this time. So God, I believe, chooses to communicate special revelation to him through the medium of a dream. And it says, And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. So we see that there's a ladder and there's angels. I picture um, that there's this ladder that's coming, like you look up into the sky and it's like leaning on nothing. But it's, it's got access to heaven. That, that ladder could also be a stairway to heaven. See, this is where you're supposed to give the joke about Led Zeppelin and Stairway to Heaven, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but this ladder that is coming down from heaven to the earth is a typology. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. An Old Testament typology is something in the Old Testament an object or a person that points to a greater reality in the New Testament. And this ladder is a, or stairway is a typology that points to a greater reality. It's found uh, in John chapter 1. You guys remember eight years ago when we started the book of John? <laughs> remember that? We're going to, and by God's grace, we're going to finish the book of John this year. By Resurrection Sunday, we're going we're gonna to get uh, through that wonderful book. But if you remember in chapter 1, Philip sees Jesus, the Messiah, and he's so excited he goes to his uh, friend Nathaniel and he goes, you've got to 
see the Messiah that I found. And he goes, where'd he come from? Nazareth. Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? He goes, yeah, come on and see. In verse 47, um, oh man, I'm going to read it to you. As they approached, <laughs> Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Nathaniel said, how do you know about me? Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. You will see greater things than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will see the heavens open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And the question I want us to, to ask here is, in this passage this morning, who is pursuing who in this passage? Is it man pursuing God, or is it God pursuing man? That's something that we need to, to think about when we think about God. When we think about teams being chosen. You know, in the playground, you always have that kid, choose me, choose me, right? They pursue the picker. Is that us? Is that how it is that we are pursuing God? Just think about that. Why did God pursue Jacob? Is it because he was righteous? No, we've already established that he was a conniving man. Was it because Jacob was pursuing him? Absolutely not. It is not because Jacob was pursuing God. And this is a truth we need to hear this morning. That God does not pursue us or choose us because of anything that we bring to the table. I'm going to say that one more time. We need to hear this. God does not choose us or pursue us because of anything that we bring to the table. It's not because we're popular. It's not because we're productive. It's not because we're profitable. It's not because we're great, gifted, superheroes. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what? What is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the wise. The strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This world has programmed us. This world has programmed us to think that our worth is all about 
our performance. Our value, the world says, is tied up in what we can produce. But when God chooses his team, he doesn't choose those that this world considers wise and beautiful and strong, but he chooses the foolish, the weak, and and the despised. He takes those who are nothing. He takes those who are nobodies so that his glory can be displayed through us and so that we can find our boast in him, so that we can glorify him. Titus 3, verse 4 through 7 says, When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done. I want to read that again. When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. He gave us confidence. Let me ask you this this morning. Do you have confidence that you're going to receive eternal life? He chose us, not because that we're we're worthy. It's not because we've earned it. He chose us because he is merciful, because he is gracious. And so God pursues Jacob and us because he desires to reveal his glory through mercy and grace. says that, As we continue on in our passage, it says that the land on which you lie, God is speaking to Jacob, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see that? What is God promising him in here? He's promising him land, offspring, and a blessing. What is that? That's the Abrahamic covenant. He's affirming it to him again. And then look at this. He says, behold, and this is what we need to hear. Pay attention to these words right here because these are the words that we need to hear this morning. Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. Look what he says. He says, I am what? With you. I will what? Keep you and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you for I have promised. I have promised you that. And in Hebrews 6, 18, it says that when God makes a promise, he cannot lie. When God promises something, he cannot lie. If he says, I'm with you, he's with you. If he says, I'm going to keep you, he will keep you. I will bring you back, bring you back. If we stray, he's like, I'm coming after you. I'm not leaving you. I'm the good shepherd. I will not leave you. And it's all hinged on, I have promised you. 
Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. He was afraid. Why was Jacob afraid? It's because he had had an encounter with God. And when, he, and when you have an, an encounter with God, it will produce two things, terror and adoration. Terror and adoration. You're like, what are you, what are you talking about, terror? Well, have you ever been to Niagara Falls? When I was like in uh, ninth grade, my family decided we're going to go on a three-week trip in a 12-passenger van with seven people, and we're going to go all the way around the United States, and we went to Niagara Falls. This picture does not do this Niagara Falls justice. But right here, this is where the people are standing. And somewhere in here, if you go there, there's this place you can go. Un they've dug a, a cave underneath Niagara Falls, and there's this place that has this little window. From my memory, the window was only like this big. And they said, look, don't stick your hand in there. Because if you do, it will rip it off. I had fear of Niagara Falls. I would not want to be up here, right? In a boat. But standing back here, I have fear and I have adoration and it causes me to worship the God who created Niagara Falls. So that's what, I believe that that's what Jacob is, is afraid of. He's had a great encounter with God that's causing him to have a, a healthy terror a good adoration that leads to reverent worship. And then he says something that's, that's not the best theology. He says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He's beginning to experience God. His theology, I don't think, is the greatest right now. Uh, he thinks that where he's standing, there's this literally a place that you can get to heaven through. So that's what he's saying here. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely, yes, he said that again. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. So he takes the stone, props it up, and he pours oil on it. This is a, a form of, of worship, of commemorating what has just happened. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth. I could preach a whole sermon on that, but we're not going to. I want to go back to verse 20. Look at where he says, if. Jacob is praying an if-then prayer. He's praying, if God will do all this, then I will do, I will follow him. Have you ever prayed an if-then prayer? I remember when I was uh, about 12 years old. For some reason, I thought I was going bald. Um, I think it's because my grandfather 
uh, was going bald. And I was like, Lord, if you will let me keep my hair, I will never sin again. Well, he kept his end of the bargain, but I didn't. If then prayers are not the best way to pray, and this passage is not teaching us how to pray. This, this, this prayer right here is not a confident prayer in God. It's not a prayer of faith. It's one of those things that he has already forgotten the promise back in verse 15 where he says, I am with you, I will keep you. I will bring you back. I will not leave you because this is what I have promised. You know, true faith has an attitude. If you have true faith, it gives you an attitude, a confidence, not in yourself, not in your situation, but in God. You guys remember the book of Daniel? There's three guys in that book. This is one of my favorite attitude passages about faith. You got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember them? They were standing before the most powerful king that's ever walked the face of the earth, King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had set up this statue in honor of himself. And he said, everybody, you got to bow down and worship this. If you don't worship it, I'm going to throw you in what? The fiery furnace. And so they, they bring, Nebuchadnezzar brings these men who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're not going to bow down. And he brings them before them. And this is what he says. Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made well and good. So I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you another chance. You probably didn't understand what you were doing when you didn't bow down to me. You didn't understand how powerful I am. He says, but if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then they, he said something that they should not, he should not have said to these men of faith. And who is the God? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I love this passage, because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to reveal their faith with an attitude. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Wouldn't you love to say that to the, we have no, like, man, we don't have to answer you in this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand confidence. They don't go, you know, we hope he's going to deliver us. If he doesn't, though, we're going to bow down and work. No, they're like, he will deliver us out of your hand. But this is what I love. But if not, even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, that is an attitude of confidence and of faith in their God. They're not saying, if God, you do this, then we will do that. What they're saying is, God, you don't have to do anything else. We know the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and eventually the God of Jacob. When you read the Old Testament, New Testament, those three guys are usually said together. They go, we, that's the God who is going to deliver us out of your hands. And this morning, as I'm closing, I've got a question I want to ask us all. 
And Terry and I were talking about this earlier this week when we were talking about this passage. Jacob seems to have come to a place in his life where he's had an encounter with God, but he's still going, if, then. You know, if you do it, then I'll serve you. My question that I want to ask you this morning, is Jesus enough in your life? Have you come to that place where you've gotten rid of the if, then? And you're more like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you're saying, the cross before me, the world behind me. I'm following you, Jesus, no matter what you do. No matter what else happens in my life, I've seen enough. I've seen what you did on the cross. I've heard and I know about your resurrection is to be true. That's enough. That's enough for me to say you are enough. So are we more interested in miracles and angels and visions and stairways, or do we want Jesus himself? And some of us this morning, uh, I get to talk. One of the things about shepherding our flock, uh, I get the privilege of being able to talk to most of us in this room. And almost every single person in this room at some point has communicated to me, you know, I feel like I'm in a prison. I feel like I'm trapped because, you know, you know you're in this room right now, but inside you feel locked up. And it, and it could be because you're not getting what you, want, uh, what you want. It might be because you're not getting to do what you want to do. And it feels like you're in prison because you think God has not come through for me. And this is, this is I'm not preaching to just one person in this room. This is, can be true of me at times, that I feel like I'm in prison. And let me ask you this. If you're in prison right now or you come to a place where you find yourself in prison, let me ask you this. If God chooses to allow to remain you, to rem- leave you where you're at, to allow you to remain where you're at in your cell, is he enough? Knowing that he said, I am with you in your cell. I'm not going to leave you, and I'm going to bless you. Is Jesus enough? The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, he finds himself in a cell, beat up, flogged, and it's crazy because it says that late in the night, you could hear him singing praising the Lord. He was in a literal cell. How could the Apostle Paul praise God? How could he say glory to the God who has allowed me to be in this cell? I think it's because he understood something. He understood how God chooses his team. He understood that his net worth is not who he is to God, but that his net worth is rather based upon what God has done for him. That's what we need to understand. That's what we need to realize, that we are valuable to God and that he proved it by sending his son, by sending that ladder to come down and touch the earth so that we could have access 
to God through Jesus. And this morning, I want to encourage you. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you for the first time that you would fall at his feet and ask him to save you and to forgive you of your sins. If you've already done that, I want to, I want to encourage you to renew your faith, to choose to believe in the one who has chosen to choose you in Christ. Let's pray.